This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, this week we have two cards. All right. Gerald Perry, number 39, first baseman slash outfielder for the Atlanta Braves. And 549, the Atlanta Braves 1987 team leaders card. Fantastic. Before we get to that, we do have an extensive amount of follow-up on Rick Rushell in our episode last week. We got a lot of comments from... Fans of Rick Rushell from detractors, or just a lot of opinions. So last week, Adam Dorowski from the Hall of Stats addressed Rick Rushell's qualifications for election to the Hall of Fame. His website, Hall of Stats, takes a purely statistical look at all baseball players' performance, taking into account their team strength, the era they they played in, and all sorts of other statistics to try to come up with objective rankings of every player in baseball history and whether they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame or not. And according to Adam's calculations from the Hall of Stats, Rick Rushell deserved to be in the Hall. And that generated, and, and our uh, discussion of it seemed to generate some criticism. I posted it generally with little putting a thumb on the scale in a couple of different Facebook groups saying, is Rick Hallworthy and talking about what Adam put in his in his article. And it generated more comments than most of our posts do. I, maybe the second most traffic of any of the posts that we've had in over the last few months, after I think only Dennis Eckersley. Most of the responses were, no, are you kidding? <laughs> I think somebody said, cut it out. Uh, <laughs> Nobody told me to shut up, but it was getting <laughs> close to it. But then there were also a lot of very good comments about Rick's quality, about the the metrics and going back, taking a closer look at Rick Russell's career through an advanced statistical lens, which is exactly what Adam did. And his his article, it lays out that this is talking about Hall of Fame value and providing Hall of Fame value to a team not necessarily what the qualifications are for the hall. There were a lot of folks who could look past the, this isn't an established superstar Rick Rushell. This is a guy with a very solid career. And there were some people who looked past that and others who just said, I don't remember him. He's not Ron Guidry. He's not other great players who had great peak seasons. It was a, it was a fun conversation, I will say, for at least for the folks who are willing to have the conversation and not just shut it down with a no. <laughs> well, it just goes to show, David, there's been a lot of controversy about Facebook, about their algorithm promoting controversial content. And I mean, perhaps Rick Russell is just so inflammatory and controversial that he tripped up the algorithm and had it generate extra attention with they Facebook's new uh, Supreme Court of Arbitrators of Justice, a hate speech, etc., may have to get involved if this keeps up. Hopefully, it won't get that far. I think I'll give Adam the the last word here on Twitter. He 
responded to something I said about the number of, of trolls, including the guy who told me to, quote, knock it off. And he said, all I'm asking to do is challenge their thinking. I don't need everyone to believe he's a Hall of Famer, but the Hall of Fame value part is tough to deny. I agree with that 100%. And it is good to have debate. So thank you to Adam. Again, follow him at Baseball Twit. And thanks again for being on the show last week. And we'll look forward to having him on future shows and maybe also future firestorms. See what else we can, what we can gin up. There was also, David, comment or suggestion about Project 70. What's that? I got a text from Tim Piznarski enthusiast, friend of the show, Jeff. And he sent me this post about Project 70, which is a, a series of cards that the Topps Corporation is putting out to celebrate their 70th year. They have different artists, popular artists, graffiti artists, I think jewelry designers, taking a look at old cards or current players and putting them in the style of old cards. Each day they release a new card, three new cards to recreate and, and reimagine old sets of cards. The one that was sent to me was a reimagining of a Jackie Robinson card by Infinite Archives in the style of 1988 tops. And Matt, I sent you that link. Yes, and we've got I've, we've got that pulled up here on the jumbotron, and it is a a striking a striking Jackie Robinson posing with the bat. In the lower right hand corner, it has the kind of diagonal nameplate, which is similar to the 1988 style, but it does have the Dodgers logo rather than just Dodgers in print along the top. So there is some difference there, but the photo of Jackie Robinson's incredible. So yeah, I like this card a lot. You also sent me a Mookie Betts uh, card. We'll put both of these in the show notes so people can see. I thought that was, this was really cool. Very, very colorful way to reimagine these cards and I just, I love fan, fan mashups and remixes and fan fiction and all sorts of fan collaborations. I like reimagining old things in a new way. So I think this is a, a good way to do it. So good job, Tops. One of the, my favorite things about running the 1988 Tops Twitter account is the number of fan art card recreations that I get to see. And there are a lot of folks doing interesting things with old baseball cards, chopping them up and recreating them and turning them into new and different things and taking some of this old worthless junk and turning it into something new and beautiful. If you follow the 1988 Tops Twitter account, I'm often retweeting some of my favorites on there, but there's a lot of good ones and a lot of folks doing great work out there. So people are turning these old cards into Bitcoins, into new non-fungible token items and trading them for lots of flus and other digital currency. Yeah, I'm trading mine in for Odeby bucks. Yeah, I, I, I like the, the design of these Project 70 cards. And, you know, maybe 20 years from now, we can go back and do episodes on all of the 1988 Tops varietals that they release. Yeah, hopefully there's not too many. <laughs> We've yeah. got a lot of cards to get to between now and then. And I think all of the cards are as much as I paid for this set. <laughs> Well, you got a good deal. You got a very good deal. So that closes up the mailbag. Let's go to our two cards. But which which card should we do first here, David? Well, not only is this a two-card episode, but this is an unprecedented two-request episode. Two requests. That's incredible. We'll sound the klaxon uh, for that one. And we're knocking two requests off the list today. The first was from at Vintage Braves on Twitter. 
and at Vintage Braves requested the Braves team leader card. I was waiting to do this card until we got around to one of these four players on the front of the card. We talked about Deion James in the O to B McDowell episode, and I think that that's Deion James on the far right. We also talked about Dale Murphy in the <laughs> Lenny Dykstra episode. Yes, and Dale Murphy, we were, we've been holding off on Dale Murphy because he was one of my childhood favorites, and my first glove was a Dale Murphy glove. Ken Griffey Sr. is also on this card. And then there's the guy on the far left. I have seen some different opinions on who this guy is. One site says this is Albert Hall, not the Royal Albert Hall, but just Albert Hall. But when I looked at the picture of Albert Hall, that doesn't really look like him at all. I typically get the photos for the Jumbotron from the Beckett Marketplace. And the Beckett Marketplace link for this card for 549 says it is Albert Hall, Dale Murphy, Ken Griffey, and Dion James. That does not look like Albert Hall from any of the pictures that I've seen of Albert Hall. It does look like Gerald Perry. And yes. Agreed. <laughs> I, from every picture I have looked at of Gerald Perry, including the, the picture on his individual card, number 39... I'm convinced that's Gerald Perry. I also have on good authority here from the venerated 88 Tops blog, thanks to Andy at High Heat Stats uh, for putting that together 15 plus years ago. He has it listed as Gerald Perry, Dale Murphy, Ken Griffey, and Dion James. And so I'm going to go with that. Authoritative. I mean, I think, I think indisputable evidence at that point. So let's do this team leaders card then. We've got four players here that we've just listed, and they look great. This is a very attractive card. The Braves uniform with the midnight blue and the red Braves script across the front, blue hats, white pants, navy belt. It looks great. It's a really good look. The four guys are smiling. They've got bats resting on their shoulders. That just looks like baseball to me. I love it. Yeah, I agree with you, Matt. It's a good-looking card at old Fulton County Stadium. I think just an, an interesting one, too, if you look at the back of the card, three of the four of these guys are listed on the back of this team leader's card, so they, they all had pretty good seasons. Of course, Dale Murphy led the Braves in a lot of statistical categories in the 80s, but also 87 was a pretty good season for Deion James and Gerald Perry as well. Yeah, Gerald Perry with 42 stolen bases. We'll talk more about that as we get to the 1987 season. Now, Ken Griffey, obviously, had an incredible career. Good card all the way around. was surprised to see Zane Smith with so many pitching leader stats uh, here, leading in innings, wins, strikeouts, complete games, ERA, and leading the team in ERA at 4.09. Might tell you something about how the Braves did in 1987 in the standings. They um, were 69 that, and 92. Yeah, not not great. Not a great season, but... But pretty good season for Zane Smith, and he was a pretty good pitcher for the Braves in this time period before their pitching staff was outstanding. So excellent. So good card, 549. Now let's go to 39, as we see the aforementioned Gerald Perry. That is definitely him on that card. I think the facial hair, if nothing else, gives it away. Gerald Perry here wearing the the gray Braves road uniform, you know, in a ready position waiting for a pitch to be hit. And that was part of the reason why another Jeff 
on Facebook, Jeff C. suggested Gerald. He said he liked this picture where it looks like Gerald Perry is waiting for the pitch while he's at first base. He also suggested that he was interested in Gerald's career because he thought he was a unique first baseman. He didn't hit for much power, and he stole a lot of bases, as you said. Earlier, 42 bases in 1987 is really pretty impressive for a a first baseman. Yeah, it's a strange combination. Not sure why. Well, in general, first basemen are tall because having long arms makes you better at stretching out and catching throws to first. And so maybe taller guys aren't as fast. I think that's pretty I think that's pretty normal. And I think at this time you you didn't have as many positions as you do today where you could get power. They were getting power from Dale Murphy and maybe some others on the team, third base early in the 80s with Bob Horner, but not getting a lot from Gerald hitting 12 home runs in 1987. But it's really interesting to get 42 stolen bases, so turning those singles into doubles. So front of the card, good-looking card. Before we get to the back, David, let's talk about the name Gerald, a name that's very similar to my middle name. I won't say what it is, but it's very similar. Just one letter off. Gerald is is a sneaky name in popularity. I did not think I knew anybody named Gerald, except for my manager from Steak and Shake in 1997. (laughs) But then I remember that uh, Jerry is the shortened form of Gerald, and I was like, oh yeah, I know a lot of guys named Jerry. I was surprised to see that in the 1930s, Gerald was as high as 19th in popularity, and that it's still... You know, we've talked about names that didn't even make the list that Garth's have entirely dropped off the the top 1,000 names. But Gerald is still in the 800s in name popularity. And it was in the top 100 names prior to the 1970s. I realized I have an uncle named Jerry and know a lot of people named Jerry, but didn't really think of it as that that was a short form of Gerald. That also led us to thinking about famous Gerald's. Where does Gerald Perry rank in in the famous Gerald's? Yeah, so I I found a site that is very informative and very troubling called FamousBirthdays.com, an SEO-optimized website with an extensive database of famous people all the way back from Renaissance painters like Michelangelo to... TikTok stars or Instagram stars who are only two years old. Your use of the word famous is dubious (laughs) there. Yeah, I think their use of the word famous in their name, famousbirthdays.com, is dubious. But looking at that site, the famous Gerald's, so Gerald Perry is not listed on on famousbirthdays.com. Sadly, there are some other very good ones. So President Gerald Ford, Gerald McRaney, the the guy on Major Dad. Spouse of Delta Burke. Mm, Yes. (laughs) Gerald McRaney. Uh, Gerald Azamoa, who was the first African-born player to play for the German national soccer team. And is Jerry Rafferty on there? So Jerry Rafferty is not listed on the famous birthday site for Gerald. He is, but he is the number seven Jerry with a G. I think that in the 
in the British Isles that Gerald was a very Gerald and Jerome and other things being shortened to Jerry is uh, very popular. And so that's that's why you see a lot of guys, a lot of old guys on this thing that look like they're they're Brits, including Jerry Marsden, who recently passed away, famous for his version of You'll Never Walk Alone, which is played before every Liverpool football club game. However, he is a Gerard and not a Gerald. Mm. So the Jerry list is tainted. This website needs some disambiguation when it comes to Jerry's. So the Jerry's out on this one, David. Tell me about Gerald Mayo. Gerald Mayo filed a lawsuit against Satan. (laughs) (laughs) He was a... I believe there's... Isn't there a song about this? (laughs) There's a song in a movie. It it reminds me of The Devil and Daniel Webster. And... (laughs) as well as the devil went down to Georgia. Uh, The devil apparently went to the Western Penitentiary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Satan on numerous occasions caused plaintiff misery and unwarranted threats against the will of the plaintiff, and Satan has placed deliberate obstacles in his path and caused the plaintiff's downfall and therefore deprived him of his constitutional rights. Satan is doing the same thing to me. (laughs) (laughs) It's difficult, but it's, you know, it's, these are obstacles that we have to overcome. And yeah, so he filed a lawsuit against Satan and his minions. It was Gerald Mayo v. Satan and his staff. I like that Satan has a staff. <laughs> <laughs> that is more official terminology than minions. But yeah, I think that the... I haven't read this case. I should. But it attempted to find Satan legally responsible for his actions. The The case was dismissed. <laughs> the judge in that case, Gerald Joseph Weber. Another Gerald. Gerald. I feel like that's a conspiracy. Incredible. I just want to know what qualifies someone to be chief of staff for Satan. Sorry you lost out on the case, Gerald. We're, we're all struggling there with you. Yeah, it didn't even get but- Gerald Mayo into the top list of Gerald's. But this case is from 1971. He was 22 at the time, so hope Gerald's doing well. Mm-hmm. He'll have to reenact his his case on TikTok in order to increase his popularity. In the meantime, someone who's not on TikTok but is the subject of our show ostensibly is Gerald Perry. <laughs> the ostensible <laughs> subject of this podcast is 1988 Top Baseball Cards. Yeah, yeah, diversions into Satan, the court system. (laughs) I'm going to start closing out some tabs. Ghanaian football players from (laughs) Stalka. So, Gerald Perry, 6 feet, 190, left-handed batter. Born October 30th, 1960 in Savannah, Georgia, with a home in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Great place. When I saw that Hilton Head, South Carolina, it gave me... A certain image of an upbringing and a childhood in Hilton Head, South Carolina, that's really based on my current thinking around Hilton Head, which you just said, great place, great golf, probably a ton of subdivisions and wealthy folks. And, and it, yeah, a resort, a resort area. Yes. And that is really my thinking around Hilton Head. And then I was thinking, what was Hilton Head in... 1960. What was Hilton Head in 1965? And I found some very interesting information about the history of Hilton Head. The population of that island was mostly black until the 1950s. Pre-Civil War, the island was largely populated by slaves, and the plantation owners didn't live on the island. Some of these 
coastal areas had also large populations of Gullah people who were a group made up largely of Western African enslaved people. And because those islands were isolated, it allowed them to keep many elements of their African culture. And there's still a large Gullah influence in in this area. And Gerald is listed as a descendant of the Gullah Corridor. So around the time that Gerald was a child and going into high school, the area really changed. The population went from 2,500 people, many of them black, in 1960. That was also the year that the first golf course opened, to by 1975, there's 6,500 people, then 200 plus thousand visitors a year. Now there's millions of visitors every year and estimated around 40,000 residents, upwards of close to 90% of them are white. And so the, this area has really changed, gentrified, and the golf and tourism industry has pushed many of the original black uh, residents of Hilton Head out. So it, it, it really gave me a different view of what Hilton Head, South Carolina was like when Gerald Perry was growing up versus now a place for folks to go golf. I had no idea of that history, and that's where it came from. How did he get from Hilton Head as it was then to becoming a baseball player? Baseball ran in Gerald's family. His uncle, Dan Dreesen, was a really solid player in the majors for 15 seasons from 1973 to 1987 and played for the Reds mostly. And so that he had baseball in his DNA and was drafted straight out of high school. I think that he was uh, playing in the Braves minor league system as early as 17 years old. So with that inspiration, Gerald becomes, you know, pursues his dream to become a baseball player. And the This Way to the Clubhouse tells us that Gerald signed as an 11th round draft selection with the Braves June 20th, 1978 by Vice President Bill Lucas. I don't know if we've had a vice president in any of these notes. They've always just been a scout, you know, scout Jimmy Sands or... (laughs) etc. <laughs> or in the one it was Joe Madden. But in this one, it is oh, yeah. Vice President Bill Lucas who signed their draft pick. And Bill Lucas had a really extraordinary life. And it was a trailblazer and has a largely forgotten story. Bill played for the Milwaukee Braves in their minor league system and retired never having reached Major League Baseball. But when the team moved to Atlanta, they hired him as a liaison to the black community in Atlanta. He rose through the team leadership structure, ran minor league operations. He admitted that he had a lot of help on his path. One thing was that his sister married Henry Aaron. And the team also had a large black fan base. And Ted Turner was open to minority hiring, at least comparatively to other owners at the time. Bill Lucas knew baseball and was well-liked by the team and and players, and he ended up being the first black man to run a baseball team. So in 1976, he's promoted. Unlike most teams, he wasn't called the GM. He was called Vice President of Player Personnel. And that was because Ted Turner wanted to be called GM, even though he was also the owner of the team. But Bill handled a lot of the trades and contract negotiations and was relatively successful in his brief time as general manager. He was responsible for calling up Dale Murphy. He drafted Bob Horner, who won the Rookie of the Year, became an All-Star. And he hired future Hall of Fame manager Bobby Cox. Pretty great record. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And really, that was all in 
just a couple seasons as GM because, unfortunately, in 1979, he died at the age of 43. It would probably be wrong to say that he left a legacy that paved the way for others because so few black GMs were hired. And it wasn't until 1993 that another black GM was hired in Major League Baseball, and that was Bob Watson, who, quote-unquote, officially broke the color barrier for a black general manager because Bill was never given that title. Currently, I don't think that there's a single black general manager in baseball. Kenny Williams, who was the GM for the White Sox, is now promoted to executive vice president. There were eight GMs hired in the last year, and not a single one of them was a black man. There was one minority hired, which was Kim Eng, who was the first woman hired as a GM. So that's great to break that barrier, but there's still a a lack of diversity at the GM level. Only two people of color are general managers in Major League Baseball. In his eulogy, Dale Murphy said some, I I thought, very poignant statements about Bill Lucas and and said that he had become a father figure and and a symbol of what it means to be a professional baseball player. And he said, Bill's dream was for this organization to be a success. It is our sacred honor to be chosen to fulfill his dream. So between Dale Murphy, Bob Horner, Bobby Cox, the Braves did fulfill that legacy. It just took maybe 20 years for them to win a World Series after Bill's passing. Yes, and a long way for the rest of the league to go. So that 1978 draft that Gerald Perry was part of was a a very good one for Atlanta besides just Gerald Perry. Their first overall pick was Bob Horner, and he went straight to the pros, the Pete Incavelia route, and won Rookie of the Year. (laughs) Their third rounder was Steve Bedrosian, who famously won the 1987 Cy Young Award and less famously was traded for Ozzie Virgil. (laughs) Famously on this podcast. And in the 11th round, they got Gerald Perry. So Gerald was in the minor leagues for six years. And a little power, you know, we see here around 15 homers a year, 30 plus bases at single A, double A, triple A. Pretty good hitter. In 1983, when he finally gets called up, he was batting 314 uh, on his way up and a very good prospect. And this call-up in 1983, David, this is a great season for him. He plays in 27 games. He's got a 359 average and a 487 slugging. Pretty good. He hit a double in his first major league at bat. He was well-regarded as a prospect, the fifth-best prospect in 1983 and 1984 in the Braves system. So they were expecting good things from Gerald. Going to 1984, he's once again, you know, Good prospect. He he plays in 122 games. A respectable season. He's got 15 steals, which, as we said, for a first baseman, pretty unusual to have that many. Uh, although caught stealing 12 times, that's not as good. <laughs> a significant number of walks, 61 walks that year and 47 RBIs. Pretty good rookie season. Maybe as a slight spoiler for a future episode, he was involved in a game with multiple fights against the Padres which led to 17 ejections, including Gerald's. So slight spoiler that at some point in the near future, we're going to talk about Pascual Perez. So stay tuned. Cannot wait for that. Moving into 1985, David, this line doesn't look very good. Let's see. 214 average, 110 games, 
a slugging percentage of 273. What happened? He hit 190 the first half of the season, and it almost became a running joke how few batters he was driving in. In April, he had two RBIs and only four hits. In May, Ooh. he had one home run and three doubles. So that was a you know okay May. Then in June, he only had three hits for the whole month. July, he had one single and one RBI, both of them on July 31st. So he basically went the whole month with nothing. Just brutal. He, for the season, in 110 games, only drove in 13 RBIs. That's dismal. It's it's sad. And I it kind of leads to the fun fact here. I missed this the first time in reading it. I, I wondered why we didn't get it into it in his minor league career uh, at the beginning of the rundown of his career. But that's because the fun fact here is that Gerald led the International League with 17 game-winning RBIs and tied for the lead with eight intentional walks at Richmond. And I look at that, and I thought, oh, wow, like 17 game-winning RBIs. That's a, that's a really great season. He must have been a very good prospect. The thing is that this happened in 1986 when he's already been a major leaguer for three or four years and was sent down and, and now has a fun fact about how good he was in the minors. Yes, in the middle of his career, he had a very good season at AAA. It's unfortunate. Also unfortunate Ooh. that how much of this fun fact is devoted to game-winning RBIs, a statistic that was really only used from 1980 to 1988. So you see on the <laughs> back of these cards a lot of space devoted to game-winning RBIs and we don't even talk about that anymore because it didn't really make much sense as far as a player's value. You know, if you score the first run in a game and the other team never goes ahead, you have now gotten the game-winning RBI, even though you scored in the first inning. But Yeah, but a- agents love those stats, though, David. That's true. Well, we'll dig more into game-winning RBIs when we get to Mike Greenwell. So he gets sent back down to, to AAA in 1986 and makes a couple... Pops back up to the majors. He actually, in preseason, hit 424, but there just wasn't room on the roster. And particularly after his bad 1985 season, they wanted to give him some time. And they had moved Bob Horner from third base to first base. Just no room for Gerald. No room for Gerald is a sad kid's Mm. book. But he hit 326 in AAA. And then in his short time in the pros that year, in 29 games, hit 271 and almost had as many RBIs in 29 games as he did the entire season before. So 1986, he at least turns it around at the end of the season to get some playing time back in the majors. But then 1987, his big opportunity comes. Bob Horner is a free agent and turns down the Braves' offer. So now there's a space for Gerald Perry again. We will, in a later episode, talk about the collusion that was happening between league owners at this time. But Bob Horner turned down a contract and no other team offered him a contract. It was collusion to drive down player contract values. Bob Horner ended up playing in Japan that season. It's bad news for Bob Horner, but good news for Gerald Perry. Willie Stargell was there to help him, coach him, in, and try to turn this around. And Gerald said he's not there to replace Bob Horner's power. Bob Horner regularly a 20 to 30 home run guy, but he could bring speed and line drive hitting. Again, not your usual first baseman role, but he had a career year, at least in terms of 
most games played, most home runs, doubles, and steals, 42 steals. And that was the fourth best total since 1920 for a first baseman. It was interesting that he was behind only George Sisler, Rod Carew, and Greg Jeffries, and all three of those guys hit better than 300. Sisler hit over 400 the season that he <laughs> stole more bases than Gerald had. Gerald hit 270, which is respectable, but a very good season, and that got him a spot on that 1987 Braves leaders card. So it was a great opportunity for him. 1988, the Braves start the season losing 10 in a row. They lost 106 games in 1988. This is really the bottom for them. However, Gerald hit 337 the first half of the season and made the, made an all-star game. Good job, Gerald. Yes. Unfortunately, he fell back to earth the second half of the season, hitting 265. He ended the season at 300, which in a pretty bad year for batting average, he ended up fifth in the National League. Tony Gwynn led the league, but only with a 313 average that year. Gerald dropped back down in power as most of the league did. He only hit eight home runs, stole 29 bases, and drove in 74 runs turned out to be a pretty good season overall 1989 the Braves played nine different players at first base and Gerald was one of them but he only played in 72 games and he hit 252 he didn't get quite the consistency that he had in previous seasons because there wasn't a spot in left field for him to play Lonnie Smith was having a great season so first base was really Gerald's only option and after hitting 252 the Braves released him at the end of the season. So 1990, the Kansas City Royals picked up Gerald Perry, and he played one season there, hit 256 in 133 games, and then moves over to the Cardinals in 1991. And he was a pinch hitter there for five years. Yeah, pinch hitter and a role player, uh, playing often in a platoon against righties. In 1991 and 1992, he was pretty low average guy, uh, 240 in 91 and 238 in 92, but had a big jump in 93 and 94, hitting 337 and 325. So, but in those five seasons, he ended up with 70 pinch hits to make him the Cardinals all-time leader in pinch hitting. Getting up to 1995, his average dropped down to 165. And so that was the end of that. For his career, You know, 265 average, 59 home runs, 142 steals in 13 seasons that he played, some or all of. So a very long career. I think it is notable that his career wins above replacement on baseball reference, minus 0.1. So basically zero. He (laughs) provided no value above replacement. And there's only 39 guys with 1,000 plus games and a negative war. And so this kind of goes back to what is value? What do wins above replacement mean? And and what value is a guy adding? We saw Gerald playing for some really terrible Braves teams, and he clearly filled in a spot. Maybe if they had somebody with more power, that guy would have been the starting first baseman, and you wouldn't have had to use Gerald Perry there. You could put him in the outfield or somewhere else to to take up a spot that uh, normally doesn't have power. And so you have this career of, of ups and downs, and so you, you wind up just right across the middle with a wins above replacement of zero. 
a versatile career that ended up about average in the league. What did he do after he retired? He has been a hitting coach on and off in the minor leagues and major leagues for multiple organizations. He was the hitting coach for the A's, Cubs, Pirates, Mariners at the major league level, as well as in the Red Sox and Tigers minor league systems. And he was the hitting coach for Team USA in 2013 at the World Baseball Classic. And one notable moment I found from his coaching career, a coach fight. Ooh, yes. We love a coach fight here. He yes. maybe punched Dave Duncan, pitching yeah. coach for the St. Louis Cardinals. There was a pregame altercation between the Pirates and the Cardinals coaching staffs. Cardinals pitching coach Dave Duncan was mad about a perceived brushback pitch from one of the Pirates pitchers. He confronted the pitcher. He confronted Lloyd McClendon, the manager. Gerald gets in the middle, may or may not have knocked Dave Duncan's hat off. Oh. I've seen it described as not a punch. It wasn't a punch. There was some shoving. Fortunately, I have not seen any video of this. Mm. But there were police on the field. Umpires had to warn the teams pregame. I appreciated this quote from Lloyd McClendon after the fight where he downplayed both the punch and the questions of a, quote, rivalry. He said, to have a rivalry, you've got to win your share of games. They've pretty much dominated us. So Lloyd McClendon realizing the state of the Pirates, they were not in a rivalry with the Cardinals. As we close the book on him, you know, like we said, a a long career at about average hitting and a couple of flashy seasons. How do you view the card now? I agree with Jeff's assessment here. Th this is an interesting player. He had a couple good seasons. But there is something really interesting about 42 stolen bases and 12 home runs for a first baseman. That's that's solid. And that actually like it creates something that a team has to defend against if you're if you can get that kind of speed out of your first base spot. I mean, you have to have the power to back it up and in 87 they had Dale Murphy hitting 44 home runs, so they didn't really need 30 plus home runs from first base. I think if he had had a little bit of power he might have had a more successful career, maybe would have made more than one all-star game, and we might remember him a little bit more. But that's still a quite a solid career, 13 seasons, and then now a 15 to 20 season coaching career. Nice job, Gerald. The last I found of Gerald Perry was 2015 with the Erie Sea Wolves. So if anybody's found anything on Gerald in the last six years, would appreciate knowing where Gerald Perry is at, and we can do some follow-up. Yeah, please do. And of course, as always, we welcome your suggestions. So thank you again to Vintage Braves on Twitter and to the two Jeffs who recommended this card and sent us all of the tips. We'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to join our class action lawsuit against the devil, you can reach out to us at Tops1988 on Twitter. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.